Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, and today we have a special guest stepping in as my co-host. It is Mr. William Hickey. Ooh, moi. Yeah, you don't have a special nickname yet, so that's I'm okay. I can I can go by my my normal name. I will develop a a moniker later. Yes, <laughs> a monkeer, as you like to say. <laughs> That's the way it looks like it's spelled. Monkeer. So um, I know we've taken about a two-month break since uh, TJ stepped away from the mic. And in that time, I think a lot happened. Did a lot happen? I think so. A few things have been going on. Maybe you've been watching the news. Yeah. So I was actually kind of glad that we took that time to step away. And we also met with our network we kind of retooled the show so this is sort of a sneak preview of what you guys are going to get from now on it is no longer going to be a random at will pick a name out of a hat kind of thing what we're going to do now is we are going to place each person in a category and spend four weeks on a category so say we have uh, the hip-hop community or that we have composers which we still haven't touched on we haven't touched on djs we also haven't gotten to some of the greatest people in the music industry yet we still haven't covered prince we still haven't covered david bowie how crazy is that you could do multiple sets on on those guys alone and it's that's probably what's going to happen so just stay tuned because we will be kind of launching that right now but we also will probably be switching hosts no offense to my husband oh none taken i i fully acknowledge my place in this i am happy to help out and i think this is a good time for this i know a lot of people are home a lot of people are feeling isolated and i think a lot of you can escape that through music and talking about music and again these subjects are so broad and so vast i think there's a lot here that can help give people something common to to talk about in a time that can be very polarizing. 
Yeah, and actually today's topic is going to actually be the greatest protest songs, arguably. I'll say arguably the greatest protest songs since we are you know it's it's sort of an unprecedented time that we live in right now I've actually never I I don't think we've lived in a time that has had these kind of protests these kind of gatherings this kind of unrest and with the pandemic and with George Floyd and uh you know everything that has happened since January we've we've rocked ourselves back from the 20s to the 60s to the 70s to, I mean, we haven't seen this in our lifetime. Yeah, and if anyone uses the term new normal, I'm going to throw something. I hate that term because, <laughs> no, I hate, it for, I hate it for a number of reasons, and some of them are funny, but to your point, that th- this shouldn't be normal. I think this taught us that what we know is normal is actually pretty crappy. Yeah. And uh, it's time for something that's better than normal. So a new normal, as I throw something at myself, uh is is you know better than what we had and i think as we talk about these songs and these subjects a lot of that's going to ring true especially now where yeah and it's it's crazy because i've read the lyrics to some of these songs and they're just as relevant now as they were in the 30s in the 60s in the 90s it's amazing how we see a lot of these topics sort of repeat themselves well you know in decades several decade cycles i should say well, I was rewatching Hairspray, the live edition, because, you know, I love musicals and we were quarantined. And so there was a, a channel on YouTube that would constantly play a new live, in, in quotes, musical a week. And they showed Hairspray one day. And it was really interesting to see when she did I Know Where I've Been. Mm. And I just cried. And yeah. and so, and I'll admit I, I've had some inside information, but I think one of the songs you have on here is basically a repeat of what happened recently with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and you know it's going to be. And you look at that and say, "How is that happening? Why is that happening?" And it's just, yeah. Uh, so, but I do think music can be not only a unifying force, but it can be a reminding force. If I just came up with a term right there, because I, I think a lot of times people can hear a song and think oh i was there when this came out you know when that happens oh yeah i mean to this day i remember a day in high school i'm not kidding when i say this when my alarm went off and glycerine by bush played i i, I swear I, I will never forget this it was my sophomore year of high school and that day my girlfriend at the time broke up with me it's funny because i remember exactly where i was the first time i heard umbop Ooh, it does ought to be good i was in my room in little my little hometown of Chester, South Carolina, and literally, I I think I was working on like an art project or something, and I was you know I had my head buried in this project, and all of a sudden like, uh huh, and I extended my neck and looked at the radio as if they were going to fall out of the speakers, and I'm like, this is awesome, <laughs> because I just because we had been through such a dark time in music with like, you know. Nirvana mm. and Alice in Chains and it just it dark, 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 nine inch nails. And all of a sudden here's like this happy poppy song. And I'm like, yes, this is amazing. I love it. Yeah, uh, yeah but not for nothing. I, I can't wait to revisit those like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And, and oh, that was my genre. Well, we already did Chris Cornell. No, I know. But we will get to others. Don't worry. Um, 
So let's dive in to our listicle today. Yes, because Glycerine and Umbop are not good protest songs. No. In case you're organizing a protest, I wouldn't put those on the playlist. Although Just Umbop, Umbop is one of the most misunderstood songs. It's actually very negative, isn't it? Or it, it's very depressing. Well, it's, it's very depressing because it's basically saying that you only have a small sliver of time in the grand scheme of things to be able to live your life out. So enjoy it while you can because eventually you're going to die. And, Mbop. And, and now they have a brewery, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? It's called Mhops. Well done, Hanson. Well done. <laughs> I got to get their beer. I wonder if they distribute. I will try that. I want to. I still want to try the family business. Because I, I am a beer enthusiast, as maybe Lindley has mentioned. But uh, I don't think I have. Okay. Well, I am. And uh, <laughs> any of those out there. Because I know a lot of musicians foray into beer and wine and other things. And I find that very interesting. So. Well, Jensen Ackles does sing, and he does have a brewery called Family Business. And uh, if they would like to sponsor the show, I will gladly take that sponsorship. And I would be happy to sample your wares. <laughs> Me too. B- b- beer, yeah. I'm, I'm talking uh, about beer. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I, I got the feeling that was the case. I love you. Anyway, I'm with the show. As I look at Jensen Ackles' face, it's right there, taped to our TV. I mean, <laughs> it, it tributes the cardboard cutout. We have a life-size cardboard cutout. Came home and it scared the living crap out of me. I'm sorry. It was in the corner and the lights were off, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> but uh, protest songs, yes. <laughs> All right, so the first one that we're actually going to touch on is it's Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, which is from 1939. It's written as a poem by, I'm going to screw up this last name, Abel Mirpol, a white Jewish teacher and a member of the American Communist Party and published in 1937 before he set the lines to music. Strange Fruit exposes the sheer brutality of racism in the United States at the time by the way of a, a stark, powerful description of a postcard he had seen depicting a lynching juxtaposing idyllic floric scenes of a southern landscape with uncompromising descriptions of black bodies swaying from the trees his words are blunt and had the desired effect of shocking and appalling listeners what was this year what year was this 39 uh, such lynchings had peaked in the united states at the turn of the 20th century and the great majority of the victims were black the song has been called a declaration of war and the beginning of the civil rights movement. He set his lyrics to music with his wife and singer Laura Duncan and performed it as a protest song in New York City venues in the late 1930s, including Madison Square Garden. Holiday, Billie Holiday, approached her record label, Columbia, about recording the song, but the company feared that the reactions by the record realtors in the South, as well as negative reaction from the affiliates, of its co-owned radio stations, CBS. When Holiday's producer, John Hammond, also refused to record it, she turned to her friend, Milt Gabler, who, whose Commodore label was producing alternative jazz. Holiday sang Strange Fruit for him a cappella, and it moved him to tears. Columbia gave Holiday a one-session release from her contract so she could record it. Frankie Newton's eight-piece Cafe Society band was used in the session, and because Gabler worried that the song was too short, he asked pianist Sonny White to improvise an introduction. On the recording, Holiday starts singing after about 70 seconds. It was recorded on April 20th, 1939. He had worked out a special arrangement with the Vocal Lion Records to record and distribute the song. When Billie Holiday first began performing the song Cafe Society in 1939, she was afraid of retaliation. But Strange Fruit became a showstopper, quite literally. A rule was enforced that she'd only be able to perform the song as the last song in her set once the bar staff had called time and the room was darkened. They cut them off, basically, right? Pretty much, yeah. 
The song has been covered by numerous artists, including Nina Simone, who we've covered on the show, UB40, Jeff Buckley, Susie and the Banshees, uh, Robert Wyatt, Dee Dee Bridgewater, and Holiday's version was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1978, and it was also included on a list of songs of Songs of the Century by the Recording Industry of America and the National Endowment for the Arts. So I'm going to play a little bit of Strange Fruit for you guys right now. said earlier music can take you away somewhere and i've never lived in that time but hearing yes her voice, you have you have lived in this time well well no that specific decade yes uh but hearing that voice you feel like you're there and that imagery is just so chilling it's the same thing that happened with robert fuller and uh, uh i mean he's the the one that because we live in california 
he's the one that we're hearing about most, but I know that this has been a thing (laughs) since the death of George Floyd. And it's, it's still poignant now. And it's, it's still scary where she says the eyes are bulging and it's a bitter fruit and, it's, ha- it's haunting and it's horrifying. It's very haunting. And that's why it's on the list. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So we all know Woody Guthrie. Um, I think through a number of his, his songs there. But uh, This Land is Your Land is, I think, one of the most misunderstood uh, <laughs> songs in the <laughs> canon. Uh, it's Again, I think we're going to get to a few of other, other these. But I think uh, there's at least one more of those misunderstood. <laughs> minimum. Minimum, you know. Uh, the fact is Guthrie was really tired with what was going on, you know, in the country. And he was looking at songs like Irving Berlin's God Bless America, you know, which you couldn't get away from in the 1930s. And it was being played over and over again. And uh, it was celebrating the national beauty of the United States, which is which is great. It's obviously a, they're very nice places, you know, and the images painted in that song, I think, are are very accurate. However, I think what Guthrie was aiming at is that we're overlooking we're missing the forest for the trees, you know, literally in this case. Um, and the issues of poverty and inequality were everywhere in the United States. Uh, so he actually based this tune on the Carter family's When the World's on Fire, which was derived from a Baptist hymn, Oh My Loving Brother, and called it, you know, God Bless America. Uh, rather, that was, you know, each, uh, each verse ended with, This land was made for you and me you know, instead of God blessed America for you and me. So that's where Guthrie sort of tied that that hook to the song that we now know. Um, you know, and the song obviously grew and changed over the years. The original version, uh, based on the song by the Carter family that we just mentioned, referred to actually uh, the island of Staten as opposed to the New York Islands. <laughs> uh, which if you ask my grandmother... Uh, Staten York, Island is not a borough. Which, which historic, <laughs> historically speaking is accurate because it was a piece of land that was offered to New Jersey and the state declined. <laughs> New Jersey was like, no, nah, we're good. Yeah, we'll, we'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> Your island over there, you, you can keep it. So. Well, we have friends that are actually from Staten Island and I've been to Staten Island and it's... Okay, here's the thing. And you it's, can see why New Jersey rejected it. It's not that bad. I don't want to alienate the people that listen to us that live in Staten Island. I, I'm not alienating the people. I just find it interesting that uh, Guthrie went with the New York Island. Actually, I want to go to Staten Island specifically because they have a closed-down hospital. And you know I love that. Remind me which one that is, because you have affinity for so many closed-down medical facilities. I love it. So that was one of the changes. It was no longer Staten Island. It became New York Island uh, in the version that eventually was popularized over the years. And he uh, took out two verses entirely, which really talked about the depression-enhanced economy, uh, the depravity and the greed that he witnessed in so many pockets of the country. So uh, again, this sort of became an anti-anthem, which again, I think we're going to hear more of as we go ahead. Uh, Guthrie originally recorded the song in 1944, and he changed the title, omitting the mostly explicit political verse. Um, and still, he went with This Land is Your Land, which gradually gained momentum as it was adopted as a patriotic anthem. Huh. And it was sung around campaign fires and at rallies and at schools across the U.S. And it does still resonate today. I think it's recognized uh, as one of those great you know, protest songs. Um, I believe Pete, Seeg- Pete Seeger and uh, Bruce Springsteen did a rendition of it for Barack Obama's campaign in 2009. Uh, and it actually culminated at the inauguration ceremony, which shows that even after, you know, since 1944, 
there's still relevance there today. You know, even Springsteen went on to say that he took uh, Guthrie's lessons to heart as he learned to balance American pride with socio-political criticism. And his own speech, listen to this, this is what Springsteen said. Woody's world was a world where fatalism was tempered by a practical idealism. It is a world where speaking truth to power wasn't futile, whatever the outcome. And that came from Springsteen about huh. Guthrie's classic, This Land is Your Land. And let's hear a little bit of it right now. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island. The redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. As I went a walking that ribbon of highway, and I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and Sparkling sands of her diamond deserts All around me a voice was a-sounding This land was made for you and me There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me the sign was painted, said private property But on the back side it didn't say nothing this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, then I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, and the dust cloud rolling. A voice was chanting as the fog was lifting. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land, and this land is my land. California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about Woody Guthrie song is it still stands today. And the line that I saw a, a sign painted with private property, this land was made for you and me. Actually, it reminds me of uh, a sentiment that was echoed in a song from the 1970s, which was signs by the five man electrical band, which the lyric is, and the sign says anybody caught trespassing would be shot on sight. So I jumped the fence and I yelled at the house. Hey, what gives you the right to put up a fence and keep me out? Or keep Mother Nature in. If God was here, he'd tell you to your face, man, you're some kind of sinner. 
Yeah, and uh, that song went on to be remade in 1990 by Tesla. I don't know who remembers that. Uh, <laughs> but they did take that one over in 1990. So I think it shows you that even though time has passed, the issues may have not. And uh, for the record, just so everyone knows, the lyric is a sign, signs, everywhere the signs, blocking up the scenery. That's a radio edit. Do the math. Ah. Yep, that is a radio edit. They did not use the word blocking. I will leave it at that. <laughs> uh, but back to Woody. So Woody had a number of songs, not just, you know, This Land is Your Land. He also had Dusty Old Dust and I Ain't Got No Home. And both of them sort of hit that angle of poverty in the U.S. and homelessness and the issues that were plaguing the nation. And uh, he unfortunately passed away in 1967. And he was obviously father of many children. But one of them was, of course, Arlo Guthrie. An interesting thing about Arlo is he wrote the song Alice's Restaurant. Alice's Restaurant. And the best part, there's two great things about Alice's Restaurant. Number one, it's not about what you think it is. It's actually about how he got out of the draft. Yeah, it's a, it's a protest song in a way. And number two, I can do my entire getting ready in the morning session <laughs> to that song because it's 18 minutes and like 38 seconds. And I feel like if you can't get ready... From the beginning to the end of that song, you are doing it wrong. Yeah, and she tells me, oh, I only take one song. Yeah, granted, it's Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant, but, you know. we. But that's with hair drying and makeup, so there. So, uh, And it's interesting how that evolved also into an, an anti-war sort of commentary, you know, as he talks about how he got out of being drafted to the Vietnam War. And if you listen to each part of it about how he goes to the police and he goes to the army sergeant and finally ends up in court... It's interesting how he unfolds that narrative and talks about each piece that was sort of steering him back into the Vietnam conflict. Isn't that interesting? It, I love it. It's it's. I actually was not privy to that song until a BuzzFeed article about how it was based on a true event. And then I found out that there was a movie based on it. So, of course, I bought it. And it is, it is highly, highly sarcastic. I'm sure, I'm sure you can go listen to it if you have, you know, 18 minutes of free time or need to dry your hair in the morning. Those will work. So Maybe just while you're showering so you can actually listen to it. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so let's move on. We had Woody's This Land is Your Land. That was from 1944. We're going to forward a bit to, I think, one of the great American song singer-songwriter poets, and that is none other than Mr. Bob Dylan. Oh, Bob Dylan. Yeah, Bob Dylan. And the song we're going to focus on is from 1963, Bob Dylan's Masters of War. Now, 1963 was obviously a tumultuous year for the United States. Um, <laughs> so much to the point that uh, the death of author, thinker, and philosopher C.S. Lewis was completely overcast by Kennedy. By the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, they died on the same day. Uh, 1963 so i mean we experienced the same thing when farrah fawcett died on the same day as michael jackson yeah absolutely yeah and also lewis was across the pond so i think you know i think different news outlets may have publicized it differently but uh in any case uh america was embroiled in the cold war at this point and a lot of people were very frightened about what was going to happen next and i'm sure many of you have seen movies i know there's a ton out there like 13 days where it talks about uh, the kennedy administration and their handling of the cuban missile crisis which is a great film so you can check that out also but people were scared this is when people were building bomb shelters in their backyard and stockpiling it was kind of the first era of panic buying in the united states i think so again dylan was a very political writer you know he write he wrote a lot about what he saw and he he 
had a lot of songs that were very sort of entrenched in the time they were written, and, and this is no exception. So uh, he's taking all that fear that America was feeling. It was obvious that someone needed to step up and do something, is what Dylan had said. And so uh, the song Masters of War came out, and it really just shook the nation to the core, because if any of you have heard it, it, it is ferocious, it is angry, and it's very much targeted at the military. Uh, it's saying that, you know, it's out of control, it's declaring, quote, a useless war, end quote, and not owning up to the problems it was causing. So in many ways, Dylan was targeting the American military and their handling of this crisis, which was uh, the Cold War. And uh, it is still, you know, a very popular protest song when you think of anti-war songs. Uh, so while plenty of Dylan's, you know, earlier songs were also political, Masters of War is really, you know, one of the most poignant. Um, so while many of Bob Dylan's early forays into political-themed music, this one doesn't leave much room for interpretation. Masters of War was released on the album The Freewheelin' Bob Dylan, and at the time, he did an interview with the Village Voice critic Nate Hentoff. Dylan was quoted as saying, I never really written anything like that before. I don't sing songs which hope people will die, but I couldn't help it at this one. This song is sort of a striking out, a reaction to the last straw, a feeling of, what can you do? It's unmistakably an angry song. <laughs> and Dylan knew that because he was feeling absolutely helpless about the United States' involvement in Cuba and Vietnam and Iraq in later years. So it started with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this feeling sort of pervaded decade after decade. And in a 2001 interview with USA Today, he explained that it was actually supposed to be a pacifist song against the war. So there's a mixed message here, and I want to clarify it. Dylan was quoted as saying, it's not an anti-war song. It's speaking against what Eisenhower was calling a military-industrial complex as he was making his exit from the presidency. The spirit was in the air, and I picked it up. So Dylan had this uncanny ability for tapping into, like I said, the public, the zeitgeist. You know, he was very attuned to what was going on, and as a result, he wrote many impactful songs during the 60s. And despite the angry tone of the song Masters of War, it's actually been covered by a number of artists, everyone ranging from the Staples singers to Cher. So you got a wide cut there. And its impact certainly hasn't dulled over the years. It was covered by Ed Sheeran in 2013 huh. for the one yeah, for the one campaign against global poverty. Judy Collins recorded the song in 1963, the same year it came out, and played it throughout her career. Leon Russell also covered the song. Pearl Jam covered the well, Eddie Vedder covered the song with Mike McCready, so I'm going to call that Pearl Jam when you have two of five members present. And at the 30th anniversary concert celebration at Madison Square Garden in 1992, Dylan performed the song again. And he also performed at the United States Military Academy at the in 1990, but he left out that last verse. So with that, I'd like to hear a little bit of the song. Here it goes. Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks you that never done nothing 
but built to destroy. You play with my world like it's your little toy. You put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes. And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. Like Judas of old. You lie and deceive. A world war can be won. You want me to believe. But I see through your eyes. And I see through your brain. Like I see through the water that runs down my drain. You fasten all the triggers for the others to fire. And then you sit back and watch when the death count gets higher. You hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. He's thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled. Fear to bring children. Into the world, for threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed. You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. How much do I know? But to talk out of turn. You might say that I'm young. You might say I'm unlearned. But there's a one thing I know. I'm younger than you. That even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when your death takes its toll, all the money you made will never buy back your soul. And I hope that you die, and your death will come soon. I follow your casket by the pale afternoon. I watch while you're lowered down to your deathbed. And I stand over your grave, and I'm sure that you're dead. It's interesting because what you were saying was it's spitting full of venom, but it's such a good song. You, it's one of those things where 
you if you don't listen to the words, it sounds like a nice song. <laughs> well, it's got that minor key to it, so there's something foreboding about the whole thing. But the lyrics are the lyrics are really spot on. There's no hiding anything. There's no metaphor. There's no poetry in the sense that it's representing. It's he's telling it like it is. Yeah. And what year was that? 1963. Okay, so literally five years later came another really powerful song, which was James Brown, Say It Loud, and I'm Black, and I'm Proud. And that was 1968. So it's a funk song that's, of course, performed by James Brown and was actually written by his band leader, Alfred Pee Wee Ellis, in 1968. Belford Sinky Hendrix wrote the arrangement for part one. Hendrix also arranged the songs Please, 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 which was Brown's first hit, Try Me, There Was a Time, Lost Someone, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, and other James Brown recordings. And we will get to an episode on James Brown. Don't worry, he's from my home state. We're definitely going to cover him. Uh, It was released as a two-part single, which held the number one spot on the R&B charts for six weeks and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100s. Both parts of the singles were later included on James Brown's 1968 album, A Soulful Christmas, and on his 1960 album, sharing the title of the song. The song became the unofficial anthem of the Black Power Movement. Uh, He had actually changed the face of music a few times before 1968, but that year, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud was the first song on which James Brown made an overt statement on civil rights. It was a typical mold-breaking way of making his feelings known. The tone of the civil rights movement had so far been one of a request for equality. It hasn't changed. (laughs) Nothing has changed. That is literally all people are crying for now is just equality. (sighs) Brown, however, came out defiant and proud. He isn't politely asking for acceptance. He's totally comfortable in his own skin. Uh, This is a quote. Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, was a record that really convinced me to say that I was black instead of Negro, remarked Public Enemy's Chuck D. We're actually going to get to Public Enemy in just a bit. Back then, folks were called Negroes, but James said, you could say it loud and you could say it proud that being black is a great thing instead of something that you have to apologize for. However, in direct response to the song's message, Willie Cobbs rightly observed that Brown was a millionaire by that point. Cobbs retort was, sing it low, I'm black and I'm poor. I hate Cobbs so much. The song went to number 10 on the Billboard charts and set a blueprint for funk. Like later Stevie Wonder classics of the 1970s, it was a political song that also burned up the dance floor. An unapologetic stormer that would influence generations. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame includes Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and there are 500 songs that shape rock and roll. And in 2004, it was ranked as number 305 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of 500 greatest songs of all time. It inspired the title of VH1's television special box set, Say It Loud, a celebration of black music in America. And I'm going to play some of it now. It is an awesome song. Yeah. 
Just in case you guys got lost in all that funk, I will read part of the lyrics, which says that some people say we've got a lot of malice and some say it's a lot of nerve, but I say we won't quit moving until we get what we deserve. 
We've been bucked and we've been scorned. We've been treated bad and talked about sure as you're born. But just as sure as it takes two eyes to make a pair, brother, we can't get, we can't quit until we get our share. And I think that sentiment still stands today. Again, there's no pulling punches there. If you look at that in the Dylan song, they're both very on point. There's really no misinterpreting it. Yeah. Uh, so the next song that we're actually going to talk about is one that makes me so mad. And we, we've seen stuff like this in the previous weeks. Not to this extent, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll actually touch on it after I explain what it is. The okay. next song is Crosby, Steele's Nash & Young's Ohio from 1970. Mm. And while they say a picture is worth a thousand words, in the case of a photograph taken by student John Philo and later printed in Life magazine, a picture also inspired one of the best protest songs of all time. The photograph was taken in the immediate aftermath of the Ohio National Guard opening fire on students protesting the Vietnam War at Kent State University. It will probably be, I'll, I will post this picture on our Instagram so you guys can see it. It is really one of the most moving pictures that I personally have seen. And it is mildly graphic, I will give that. It's mildly graphic, but you can see the pain and the torment on this girl's face, and it is, it's chilling. And this is 1980? No, 1970. Sorry. 1970, okay. 1970. It's the Vietnam War. Oh, okay, got it. So they opened fire on the students, and the picture captures protester Mary, and I think her name is Vecchio, kneeling aghast and open-mouthed over the body of student Jeff Miller at the moment she realized what happened. When Neil Young saw the photo, he was appalled, enough to take a guitar handed him by David Crosby and pour out his anger into a song. Ohio drew an us and them line in the sand with the lyrics, soldiers are cutting us down, should have been done a long time ago, reflecting the anti-student protest sentiment among factions of the U.S. public. The recording by Crosby, Steele's Nash & Young made it even more powerful as the song comes to a head toward the end where David Crosby's appalled, passionate cries of why only the very best protest songs transcend a very, a very specific subject, no matter how universal, and Ohio does exactly that. And we, we've heard, we saw on TV, if you've been watching the news, we've seen protesters getting hit with rubber bullets. We've seen protesters getting hit with tear gas. And I don't care what side you are on politically, but, you know, we heard about the tear gassing of the people so that President Trump could take a photo at the church. We've heard about violence against protesters. We've seen protesters being shoved. We, we watched like a 70-year-old man get pushed, and I don't know if he's okay or not, but these things have been circulating, and you see this violence against people that are just standing up against this tyranny and against these things and I can only imagine what he felt when he saw this photo because it is such a raw picture a snapshot in time and it is that moment of here's the line in the sand it's us against them and my sentiment is that it is us against them and, and the Vietnam War was really the first time media played a huge part in a conflict. You know, prior to that, the idea of people watching a war was actually not new. You know, there are cases going back to the Civil and Revolutionary Wars where people would 
watch the battlefield from their, you know, from their porch. And this is different because the, the war wasn't on our own soil. It was obviously somewhere else. And we were for the first time getting feeds back from these battlefields and seeing what was going on over there. And it was the first time I think Americans had the chance to, shall we say, interpret and react to that kind of exposure because we hadn't really had it before. So the Vietnam War, I think, marked a turning point in, you know, how a war is essentially marketed. Yeah, I we had had, uh, you know, with World War Two, we had the the newsreels that would play before movies because there was no real television. Movies were the mediums, and we would gather around the radios. And so it was really the first time that a war had been caught on TV. Mm. And it really changed people's opinion of war. Because before, in, in when it came to World War II, it was footage of our boys going to war proud and strong and you didn't see the death and the destruction and you didn't see the failures with the Vietnam War they had reporters on the ground in Vietnam reporting from the battlefields and you would well battlegrounds I would say but it, it was coming to us uncensored and then people started to learn about the politics of the actual war. And there is a great podcast called Time Suck with Dan Cummins where he actually does um, his episodes on the Vietnam War. And it's incredibly interesting because he does kind of boil it down to the most interesting points in a two-hour podcast because this is so much information. Okay, I'm getting off my soapbox. I'm starting to get, like, out of breath and angry. That's okay. It's okay. Again, it was a very divisive war. And I think people were on both sides of it. And, you know, we're going to get to a little bit further how it was perceived and, you know, how the people coming back from that war were, were treated. Okay, so now I'm going to play Ohio for you guys.
soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming. Or dead in Ohio. Or dead in Ohio. Or dead in Ohio. Or dead in Ohio. Coming in So that was Ohio, and I, I should note that that song, the, the actual events of Kent State happened on May 4th, 1970, and the song was actually released in June of 1970, so there's a very short turnaround, so um, kind of like with I Don't Like Mondays, mm. that was released, I think, a couple weeks after that event happened. So that the the feelings of the song are very raw, very real, and very fresh. Well, it's interesting you mention that because we get into a couple songs later. We'll talk about sort of that aftermath of something that comes into play later. Yeah. Excellent. What's next? What is next? Well, we are going to talk now about Nelson Mandela. Oh, the Mandela effect? Not the Mandela effect, no. <laughs> the man himself. And uh, first of all, before I go any further, I think if you want, you know, the best picture of Nelson Mandela, his book, Long Walk to Freedom, is by far the best snapshot of his life. I feel like, I feel like you've read that several times. I have. I've read that one and also Mandela's Way, which was co-authored by, uh, which was actually written by Richard Stengel, who helped Mandela compile The Long Walk to Freedom. So, oh, wow. Sort of a co-author. And I, I mean, I feel like everyone knows Nelson Mandela, or at least a little bit about Nelson Mandela. And the effect you're referring to was actually a misunderstanding about his passing. Uh, Nelson Mandela was, it was... Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Before you go on, are okay. you about to explain a strange event to me? No, 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 just to... Okay, out. well, you need to turn to our audience, because uh, I know what this is. <laughs> no, I know you know what it is. Uh, long story short, there was a news article released that Nelson Mandela had died. And no, 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 it wasn't. Okay, care to explain? Yeah. People recalled seeing his quote-unquote funeral on television when, in fact, it was his birthday celebration. Correct, yes. So it was Mandela's birthday, and somehow people thought they were seeing his funeral, which was odd. <laughs> I mean, that happens to me every year. People are like, is Lindley dead yet? I'm like, I'm sitting right here. It happens that often? I mean, so, more than you would think. So the song Free Nest, Nelson Mandela was actually composed in 1984 by The Specials. And The Specials are one of those bands you keep hearing about. They have just a robust catalog. They were a British two-tone out outfit out of Coventry, England, very ska-based, sort of roots in punk there of the late 70s and early 80s. And they had composed this song, which was an anti-apartheid message. And The Specials are known for a lot of works, one of which is particularly Ghost Town, which was targeted at Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Uh, so we'll get into that in a little bit. But they have other one notable songs like Monkey Man, Gangsters, Too Much, Too Young, and, of course, the one we are now speaking of, Nelson Mandela. Now, free, free Nelson Mandela, I should say. It ended up being a top ten hit in the UK for the specials in 1984, and it became sort of an anthem for the anti-apartheid movement. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with 
the apartheid movement, it was the suppression of the native black people in South America by the white government. Uh, so it was a very tumultuous time, to be sure. And Mandela was actually instrumental in the radical end of that movement. In fact, he was vilified by his own government. And therefore thrown into prison where he was on Robben Island for, oh, geez, I have the exact number right here. I think he was there for 27 years uh, in prison, wrongly, by a government who basically just wanted him in prison. So this message by the specials was geared precisely towards that. It became sort of an anthem against this segregationist movement in South Africa, which started all the way back in the 1950s. So Mandela, who was actually originally a guerrilla fighter, uh, was convicted in 1964 along with the other leaders of his party, the African National Congress, and was consequently thrown into prison. And he was originally given a life sentence, but thankfully that was ended after 27 years and and he was released from Robben Island in South Africa. Can you, okay, I know that we take a lot of the things that we have over here for granted, but could you be, could you imagine being thrown into prison for your personal beliefs wrongly accused of something and spend 27 years not even able to fight your case. Yeah, you, he couldn't. He didn't have a leg to stand on. The government took everything away from him. It's insanity. It's it's, it's scary, too, to think that that, you know, we do take... I can go on Twitter and say I hate someone and I have that right. And other countries don't have that. And I think we, we take a lot of our freedoms for granted, but... You know, it's it's so scary to think. Now, the silver lining to all this was while Mandela was imprisoned, the movement that he was spearheading actually thrived. And this anti-apartheid movement actually grew while he was in prison. And he continued to work against apartheid as he came out of prison and was eventually working in the South African government. And uh, however, when this was going on, the government resisted and they were boycotting performances in South Africa. So they were limiting what people could see and have exposure to. Now, Jerry Dammers of the specials actually wrote Free Nelson Mandela, and he later admitted that when he wrote it, he knew very little about it. Jerry Dammers was quoted saying, I'd never actually heard of Nelson Mandela, although I knew a lot about the anti-apartheid movement, and he was becoming a figurehead for that whole movement. So... The year after this is when Sun City is going to come out, which is saying it's a, a, collected, a, a collection of artists that got together and basically wrote another protest song about how they wouldn't play Sun City because they had the apartheid. So continue. Sorry. Wasn't Queen attached to that in some way, shape, or form? No, uh, Queen actually broke that up. Okay, so they, they Queen, stepped over the line. Queen, okay. Queen played Sun City when other people were That's protesting it. Uh, it was Peter Wolf, Curtis Blow, Pat Benatar, David Ruffin, uh, Eddie Kendricks, Joey Ramone, Jimmy Cliff, Daryl Hall, Lou Reed, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, and a ton of other people. John Oates, Run DMC, Bonnie Raitt, Bono. Of course, Bono was there. Yeah, of course Bono was there. That, that's Sun City. I didn't include that, but I felt like it was. this is a good extension of Sun City. It is, and I think the point to take away here is that the movement Mandela was at the front of sort of transcended his name. You know, people knew who he was because of the movement. Right. 
And it did climb up the charts in the UK, and everyone thought that was a very good thing. In fact, veteran DJ and broadcaster Paul Gambaccini said the song was as effective in educating people about Mandela, whose reputation was low in the West at the time. Again, no one was entirely sure about who he was. They just knew he was part of something important. And uh, Gambaccini was later quoted saying, Now we have this sainted vision of Mandela, but at the time, Thatcher treated him like a terrorist. So to release a record about someone whom your prime minister considers a terrorist, terrorist is quite brave. So the specials were not only commenting on a very controversial issue, they were doing it from their home country where there was support for the very thing Mandela was fighting against. Good for them. It takes cojones, yeah. So the song helped change the perception about Mandela, which was a very positive thing, and it was a very effective protest song. So in 2010, the magazine known as The New Statesman published a piece on this and included Free Nelson Mandela as one of the top 20 political anthems of all time. It said that it was effective for two reasons. It's a good pop record that was catchy and it sounded good. And immediately you knew what it was about because the first three words are Free Nelson Mandela. So there you have it. And secondly, it had a clear message that the audience agreed with. So at the time, the specials were very popular, and it was noted that their popularity actually helped springboard the cause. Again, them being in a country that was supporting apartheid and getting this message out and actually spreading it to other places like the United States. So it gained popularity there. Which is exactly what you want a protest song to do, affect change. Now, just four years later, this is 1988, Dammers of the Specials and the band Simple Minds. You know them, right? Obviously. <laughs> I mean, yeah. don't you forget about me. Um, where was I? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Simple Minds. They organized the Nelson Mandela 70th birthday concert at Wembley Stadium. Some of the acts included, here's some names you'll know, Dire Straits, George Michael, Sting, Peter Gabriel, and Steve Van Zandt. Yeah, Steve Van Zandt would also go on to do Sun City, so that's awesome. That event was televised and watched by almost 600 million people worldwide. Nice. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, sorry to interrupt, but our next episode is actually going to touch on what Mr. Hickey is talking about right now, which is benefit concerts. Yes, that is going to be our next one, so make sure you check in for that one. So Gambaccini was very proud of this and went on to say the concert was an incredible success. It had the biggest TV audience to date and put Mandela in the topic A position around the world. But it might never have happened without the song Free Nelson Mandela because it inspired some of the artists who appeared at Wembley Stadium for that celebration. And one last note before we move on to the song. The impact of the concert was more than just a concert because the South African government was secretly holding talks with Mandela during this time. And these meetings culminated with his release from prison on February 11th in 1990. And four years later, he became the first black president in the Republic of South Africa. Yes! With that, let's go to the song.
That is so upbeat and catchy, and <laughs> the message is very clear. So I say that is a truly effective protest song. To the point where four years later, after Mandela was released in the film PCU, there's a joke about a group who's protesting a new cause each week, and one guy is saying, free Nelson Mandela! <laughs> and they look at him and say, they freed him already! <laughs> hey, you haven't seen PCU. What a great movie. And it has George Clinton and the P-Funk. George Clinton and the... Parliament Parla- Funkadelic. Parliament Funka. I can never say it right. Parla- George Clinton... And the Parliament Funkadelic. What we just did was almost the same reenactment from the film where you're John Favreau and I'm <laughs> Mulaney explaining it to you. John Favreau. Great director, actor, John Favreau. Yeah. But I digress. So that's Free Nelson Mandela by the specials, originally penned in 1984. Yes, 1984. So in that same year, there was a song that came out that everybody knows. And I know you all know it. Now, I will start by saying this is a divisive topic in our house. Uh, I am a Bruce Springsteen fan. I grew up in Jersey. Pass. So, uh, However, the one thing we agree on is he is an excellent songwriter. Yes. And lyricist. He is. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bruce Springsteen is a terrible singer. His version of Blinded by the Light is one of the worst things that I have ever heard. Also, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so I I, I can't say any of this. They won't let me back home if I do. (laughs) I've always been a Springsteen fan. Lindley is clearly not. I've tried to introduce her. The results have been mixed. It didn't stick. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, and here's the thing. It's... I, I. He's no Phil Collins. I don't hate him. That's the other divisive topic in our house. <laughs> I don't I don't hate I don't hate Bruce Springsteen. I just don't get Bruce Springsteen. I think it's being from that area too. And speaking of, you know, New Jersey, my home state, I do want to give a shout out to a podcast a dear friend of mine has and it covers actually this song they talk about it. So, it is appropriate. The song of course is Born in the USA titular song from the album released in 1984 and if you want a perspective on this you can tune in to don't eat all the meatballs with (laughs) yep don't eat all the meatballs great podcast hosted by michael wheels paris and charlie defazio you will love it and i won't i won't even tell you why it's called don't eat the meatballs you gotta listen to the show yourself i'm making meatballs over here over here (laughs) oh johnny meatballs love it so 1984, as everyone knows, born in the USA and is by far the most popular Springsteen album. Yeah, uh, Born in the USA has Born in the USA, Cover Me, I'm on Fire, No Surrender, My Hometown, Dancing in the Dark, Glory Days. I mean, it's what many would consider a greatest hits album. Now, what people don't know, and this is important to the message, is that was not the inception of the song. It actually started... As almost a quieter, sort of shakier cut that was originally intended for Bruce's previous album, Nebraska, which was released in 1982. Huh. And Nebraska is, again, this is where it's also divisive. I love the Nebraska album. Springsteen fans and non-Springsteen fans take him to task over this all the time. I love it. It's got Atlantic City. It's got State Trooper, Used Cars, Open All Night. Highly highly underrated album and yet considered one of his weakest so i respectfully disagree 
My point is the original tone of the song wasn't, as Bruce Springsteen put it, entirely clear to him. And if you listen closely, the subject is clear, but the intention may not be. So here's where we'll dive in a little bit. Inborn in the USA, Springsteen describes the Vietnam War. He talks about a veteran who's coming home and he's having a hard time making ends meet. He's having a hard time getting back to society. And that's the message that keeps coming over and over again. And on the other hand, you have sort of this rousing chorus, which is often looked at as a anthem of patriotism. And they are so wrong. And it's interesting because to this day, <laughs> NPR actually said on Morning Edition, Born in the USA may hold the title for the most historically misunderstood song of all time. Accurate. Of all time. And again, going back to Springsteen, they interviewed him. And Springsteen even said it took him a while to figure out just what the song was trying to say. Because again, he wrote it with a different tone and a different feel. It got pushed. It got modified and released as what we know today with lyrics that are, I think, very on the nose about the struggles of someone returning from the Vietnam conflict. And on the other hand, you have this rousing chorus of Born in the USA. So... I, I, I'm going to interject really quick is because I feel like we had more anti-Vietnam songs. What's, what, how am I trying to say this? I feel like the Vietnam War sp sparked something in musicians that they felt like they needed to use their platform more to get their message out. Because think, think about Born in the USA, Fortunate Son. Um, what are some other, uh, well, a Buffalo Springfield, right? Ohio. Yeah. Some of the songs we talked about today are specifically about the Vietnam War. And, uh, it's, it's just interesting that it still resonates now. That war seems to have affected more Americans than any other war. We see it. We see a lot of times we see World War II and Vietnam in our films, that's, those are the two conflicts that they choose. MASH, to my knowledge, seems to be one of the few things that touched on the Korean War. True. And 1917 was the first like blockbuster film I've actually seen about World War I. So it seems like the World War II and Vietnam are the two conflicts that people focus on the most. I think it's a good point. I think it also comes back to the point of the Vietnam War was the first time that we really opened up and looked at what happens after the war. What happens to these people who are coming home from battle? You know? Mm -hmm. uh, I think with World War II, we, we all see the famous uh, Victory Day photo of the, the sailor kissing the nurse, correct? Right. That's our perception of World War II. However, there were cases of atrocities no why am i going blank on the term um, post-traumatic stress disorder back off of it and say that yeah. again there were cases of post-traumatic stress disorder for world war ii for world war ii yeah of course even the term shell-shocked came from world war one yeah so these things existed however i think the vietnam war brought it into the public eye and really opened it up yeah good bad and ugly so, in this interview with Morning Edition, the musical director, Lauren Anki, 
talked a little bit about the evolution of this song and what it meant to Bruce Springsteen. And she points out that in 1981, he did a big benefit concert for Vietnam veterans in Los Angeles, and he had a chance to meet with the vets. After that tour ends, there's a number of places where he's trying to write about the Vietnam veteran experience. So the song grows out of that movement, and it starts out with something just called Vietnam. And I don't know about anyone listening out there. Maybe, hon, you remember this. There were those commercials around in like the mid to late 80s where they would address us and say, what does it mean to talk about Vietnam? I don't know if we had those. We had those. Oh, yeah. I, I don't ever remember seeing those. Well, this the lyrics of this song, Born in the USA, are the narrative of someone coming back from that war. And as you know, this is very personal to me because my father was in Vietnam. So he is a veteran, and I don't know all of his experiences to this day of what happened to him in the Vietnam War. And I think this was, again, the first time we looked at this and figured out, okay, how do we treat these people coming back? What does it mean for them to come back? And just what obstacles are they facing? And that's, I think, what Bruce Springsteen is really carving away at this song. I mean, you know, he talks about, in this version of Vietnam, this is some of the drafts he had for the song. And this is a rough draft for the demo of Born in the USA. Here's some of the lyrics of a Vietnam veteran arrives and he goes to get his old job back. Son, understand, if it was up to me, about half the town's out of work. Ain't nothing for you here. From the assembly line to the front line, but I guess you didn't hear, you died in Vietnam. Jesus. Now, that didn't make the commercial cut, but it was part of the draft that Bruce was working up. And he says, you know, I'm 10 years burning down the road, nowhere to run, ain't got nowhere to go. It describes so many of Springsteen's male characters who are lost and who can't find a home. The system around them of jobs and connection are unattainable. And as I was saying before, I think the Vietnam War is really what brought this into the public eye of these people coming home. Now what? So Born in the USA underwent a number of changes, many that we don't even know about. And in fact, the version that became the title track to the album, Springsteen changed up until the moment it was released. He turned up the volume and he made the lyrics for the chorus kind of more, you know, uh, he shouted a little bit more. He made him a little more vocal and he put some, you know, oomph behind it. And in many ways, it was sort of a counterpoint to the narrative of this man who came home from war and just found, you know, nothing for him. Springsteen said in a later interview, the pride was in the chorus. In my songs, the spiritual part, the hope part, is in the choruses. The blues in your daily realities are in the details of the verses. So already Bruce is pointing out sort of a, you know, counterpuntal arrangement of these items. He's looking at the, you know, Born in the USA anthem and also the pieces of this broken life of someone who came through the Vietnam War. And Springsteen fans will be the first to tell you, because Springsteen puts on an amazing show, just what type of effect this has on the crowds. And you do see sort of the up and down in the chorus versus the lyrics. And uh, I do want to point out that uh, when he performed at Giant Stadium, none other than Governor Chris Christie, yes, Chris Christie. <laughs> I'm going to shut down a bridge because I'm mad. Uh, came out and joined Springsteen on stage, actually. Ah. Uh, over the years, Springsteen has been willing to tweak the song's meaning and 
he actually played an acoustic version of it in the 90s where he dropped some of the chorus and changed some of the verses. Uh, in fact, there was one piece he did in 2003 where he played for the veterans of the Iraq War. And in it, Springsteen played the song acoustically with none of the chorus. Wow. Yeah, he just took it out there. So it's a complex song. It's divisive. And I think it goes back and forth in describing the challenges that America is facing. And I think this is really where it happened if we raise the question, how do we treat our veterans? I also think that it's kind of like a wedding. Hear me out. Where you start to do your first dance and people either choose Whitney Houston, saving all my love for you, <laughs> or they choose, you know, the police every breath you take. My favorite was a couple that did U2 still haven't found what I'm looking for. <laughs> really, guys? But it's like, guys, guys, it's in the title. But when politicians use this song for their political campaigns, I'm like, oh. it's like doing Fortunate Son. Mm. It, it's like, guy, are you not, are you not listening to the words, guys? Because if you listen to the words, you might want to pick a different song. Maybe like. We are the champions, maybe. I don't know. Just listen. So that version that we know, and we're going to play it in just a moment, is really that fist-pumping anthem for those who, well, maybe can listen to the lyrics in the middle because this song is a bit subversive, and even Springsteen, again, sort of came around to what it means to him, and it has even evolved over the years. So... I think now is the perfect time to hear the song and hear both of those things in contrast of the lyrics of the verses opposed to the chorus. Here we go.
I mean, here's the thing. It's still a good song. But that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, my takeaway is it's a divisive song. It's got two sort of themes to it. And Nebraska is my favorite album. So I just feel like the message gets lost in the fact that, especially like where I grew up, it was very overplayed. It's the same way I feel about Under the Bridge. People love that song and they overplayed it to the point where I cannot stand it. And I think there's stronger Springsteen songs out there. Yeah. Like Blinded by the Light. It's just not sung by him. <laughs> right. He just wrote it. So we'll flash forward about five years and we're going to move into the popularity of hip hop. And I think one of the most notable songs of protest from that era, and that is Public Enemies Fight the Power. Now, Public Enemy was a hip hop group which included none other than Flavor Flav. There it is. <laughs> Chuck D, Terminator X, DJ Lord, Sister Soldier, Curry Wynn were the main members, and they were, of course, on Def Jam Records. The album was It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, and Public Enemy at that point were, I think, at their peak. I think that was about as the height of their popularity at that point. I think that's pretty accurate, mm -hmm. yeah. And this has a large, you know, a lot, lot of that's due in large part to none other than director and filmmaker Spike Lee. Do the right thing. Exactly. No. And and what was it? 2017, Black, Black Klansman. Klansman. One of the best films I have seen in probably the last 15 years. Yeah, it's astounding. That and 25th Hour. I mean, Spike Lee's resume, I think, speaks for itself. Along with the video for Doing the Butt, which he also did. Wow. You're going to pull that out during this episode. He did. It's part of his body of work. <sighs> so We talked about this. <laughs> So Spike Lee was actually working on Do the Right Thing. And for those of you who have seen the film, it's really about the racial tension that existed in New York. And I think the, the end scene is masterful, where he throws the garbage can through the window. Spoiler alert. The, the film came out over 30 years ago. Did, did, did. Uh, I'm going to say the statute of limitation on spoils had, has run out. So he knew when he was writing the movie that he wanted Public Enemy to be on the soundtrack. And according to Hank Shockley, who was a member of the group's production team, Spike's original idea was to have us do a hip-hop version of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is a spiritual. But I opened the window and asked him to stick his head outside. What sounds do you hear? You're not going to hear Lift Every Voice and Sing in every car that drives by. We need to make something that's going to resonate on the street level. And I think that's where we get... Groups like, you know, Public Enemy, NWA, groups that were really speaking out of their own experience. And again, it's very biographical, I think, to Shockley's point. The idea of everyone singing a spiritual wasn't the language of, of that world, you know? The message was there. So they set out to write this song, Fight the Power, and it was just explosive. It was funk and it was rap and it was all these elements that were kind of mashed together into just this collaboration you know and it was really spirited by the lyrics of their front man at the time which was chuck d and of course yes flava flave was a member of public enemy <laughs> he was their hype man and it really captured the social and psychological struggles that were facing young black americans at this time in the city so again you're talking about people really speaking from their own experience 
And we will let the song do the rest. Okay. Are you done with? Yes, I'm done. And just a small parental warning, I do believe that there are some naughty words in the song. Mm-hmm. So if you want to skip forward through the song, I think it's about three minutes long. So just a warning. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. Damn, damn if I said you could slap me right, right here. here. Get it? Let's get this party 
The message still stands. Most of my heroes don't appear on a postage stamp. That yeah. line is... Oh, yeah, no, but they got Adventure Time stamps, so that's good, right? They do? They do. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do. Oh, I don't know that. I don't actually know. I've never seen Adventure Time. I was just trying to figure out something that was, like, pop culture relevant. They might. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, it's... It's about being underserved, underappreciated, not understood, it, underrepresented. It's, it, you have to fight. You have to fight and you have to keep fighting. And, and that, is, that is a message that I wish we didn't have to have. I wish there was no fighting. Unfortunately, we, we don't live in that world. We don't live in a society where you, you don't feel like you're marginalized. And I hate that. So the next thing we're going to talk about is something that we actually spoke about before, which is A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Mm. And I feel like this song, for me, is one of the most powerful and one of the most moving protest songs that we've spoken about. And I don't know why it hits me so hard every single time. Maybe it's just because there are images that are attached to it that resonate with me. But this is, this is one of those songs for me. Now, you did an entire episode on Sam Cooke. We did do an entire episode on Sam Cooke. If you'd like to find out uh, about his whole tragic and short, incredible life, uh, you can check that episode out as well. It's in our archives and our back catalog. So feel free to look that up wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. On March 7th, 1965, a state trooper knocked down, gassed, and beat a number of men and women who who were participating in a peaceful march for voting rights in Selma, Alabama. That same day, radio listeners around the country might have heard Sam Cooke singing lyrics that he had written and recorded several months earlier. He could have been describing the Bloody Sunday confrontation of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The song, which was released as the B-side of his posthumous hit, Shake, just days after his funeral in 1964, entered the national pop and R&B charts during the first week of 1965. If you guys remember... The episode, I told you that this song scared him. He wrote this song and he was afraid of it. This was what year? Uh, He wrote it in 1964. Mm. Cook was actually motivated to write A Change Is Gonna Come by another 60s anthem, Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. And Bob Dylan's come up so much in this episode. He's been around. When he first heard that song, Peter Gurlnick, writes in a 2005, in 2005's Boogie Dreams, The Triumph of Sam Cooke. He got so carried away with the message and the fact that a white boy had written it that he, he was almost ashamed that he hadn't written it himself. For one thing, Change delivers a message notably distinct from Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. 
On the recording, Dylan is obviously concerned about the troubles that he's addressing, but his flat delivery contains none of the urgency, the hope, or the confidence that are so paramount in Cook's performance. Shortly afterward, Dylan would write, only a pawn in the game in response to the murder of Medgar Evers, and he would travel to Greenwood, Mississippi, in support of voter registration and perform at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. But the Dylan of Blowing in the Winds muses over important issues from a third-person distance. That Cook song, I Was Born by the River, askews from the jump. So basically, this is saying that Bob Dylan wrote it from a third-person perspective, a viewer of an event where Sam made himself a participant in it. And therefore, it feels closer, harder, scarier, and more real. And I, I, I feel like that's true. Um, Dylan poses philosophical musings and rhetorical questions amid antiquated word choices. In the days of Ban the Bombs, he was going on about cannonballs. Uh, geological time frames, those washed to the sea and the mountains, and Old Testament allusions blowing in the wind, intimates that the answers we crave are where they have always been and where, tragically, they will always remain. A change is going to come is unequivocal. Generation after generation has heard the promise of it continuing to be a song of enormous impact, he says. We feel in some way or another that a change is going to come, and he found that lyric. It was the kind of hook that he'd always looked for, the phrase that was both familiar but striking enough that it would have its own originality, and that makes it almost endlessly adaptable to whatever goal, whatever movement is of the moment. And I'm going to play that for you guys now, and if I'm crying by the end of it, I'm really sorry. To my brother 
And I say, brother, help me please But he winds up knocking me It's the same today as it did 50 years ago. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, almost 60 years ago. So we're going to jump back to almost 100 years ago. Oh, jeez. <laughs> almost. It's uh, 90, 91 years ago. Ooh. Yeah. To a song by Florence Reese called Which Side Are You On? And when we get, I'm going to say, when we get to playing the the song at the end of this i'm actually going to play two versions one is going to be florence's version and then the other version is by uh pete pete seeger and the reason why i'm playing two versions is hers is very real and very raw and his is more melodic and polished and i just want you to be able to hear the difference between the two versions so Buckle in, the actual music version is going to be a little bit longer for this one. But as you guys know, songwriters are inspired by a variety of ways, but rarely is pure rage their muse. Uh, This was actually the case for Florence Reese after her seven children were terrorized by a sheriff and his men in Kentucky in 1931. Her crime? She was married to Sam Reese, a miners' union organizer during a bitter strike that became known as the Harlan County War. And I believe that there is a documentary on HBO called Harlan County, USA that you can catch if you have the HBO app. HBO Max, yep. Uh, Which Side Are You On was actually written by Florence, the wife of Sam Reese, a union organizer for the United Minor Workers in Harlan County, Kentucky. Little did she know that her fury would create one of the greatest labor movements, Anthems, which also became a platform for various campaigns to adapt for their causes. In 1931, the miners and the mine owners in southeastern Kentucky were locked in a bitter, violent struggle called the Harlan County War. In an attempt to intimidate the family of union leader San Reese, Sheriff J.H. Blair and his men hired by the mining company illegally entered the home in search of Reese. Reese had been warned in advance and escaped, but his wife, Florence, and their children were terrorized. That night after the men had gone, Florence wrote the lyrics to Which Side Are You On on a calendar that hung in the kitchen. She took the melody from a a traditional Baptist hymn, Lay the Lily Low, or the the traditional ballad Jack Murrow. Reese supported a second wave of minor strikes circa 1973 and recounted in the documentary Harlan County, USA. As recounted in the documentary Harlan County, USA, she she and others performed Which Side Are You On a number of times throughout. Reese recorded the song later in life, and it can be heard on the album Coal Mining Women. Pete Seeger, collecting labor 
Union songs learned which side are you on in 1940. The following year, it was recorded by the Almanac Singers in a version that gained a wide audience. More recently, Billy Bragg, Dropkick Murphys, Rebel Diaz, Natalie Merchant, Andy DeFranco, and Tom Morello uh, each recorded their own interpretations of the songs. They've all covered this? Yes. Wow. And I love Natalie Merchant. Those are some great names there. Yeah. The song is referred to by... Bob Dylan. Hey. Can we have one entry where he isn't in this? To be fair, you pick protest songs. That's yeah. sort of his, his <laughs> niche, so probably not. Don't get me wrong. I like Bob Dylan. I do. Uh, it, the song is referred to him in the song Desolation Row, and it was also the inspiration for the title of Alessandro Portelli's 2011 book on Harlan County Coal Mining Community. That Say that five times fast. Nope. The song was also adopted in the early 1960s by the black civil rights movements when the Freedom Singers gave it a, a hand-clapping gospel feel and rewrote the lyrics, Come all you Negro people, lift up your voices and sing, Will you join the Ku Klux Klan or Martin Luther King, uh, was one of the verses. Reese's song, again reworded, has again been used for the Black Lives Matter campaign in recent years. Uh, a couple more artists that have actually re-recorded it uh, were Deacon Blue, Elvis Costello, Joan Baez. I mean, those are, that's a good pedigree of people to be. Also for a song that is nine, almost 90 years old. But it stayed, like you said, because of these artists, it stayed current. It stayed, you know. And it's not available. just, it's not just, it's the, the subject matter hasn't changed. Like the idea of which side are you on is a, an idea that has Never left the zeitgeist. It's always been there. Uh, Billy Bragg, speaking from his home in Dorset, recalled how he first heard the song in 1984 and wrote lyrics specific to Britain's Miners to sing at a benefit concert. He was also included on. Uh, he also included it on his 1985 EP Between the Wars. It's such a simple song. He said, liking it to "We Shall Overcome." Oh, I thought you were saying. No. It's such a simple song, he said, liking it to We Shall Overcome, in being easily to adapt to whatever your cause is. That's the reason why it's prevailed over the years. Uh, once once recent inappropriate use would have Reese turning in her grave, it provided the closing soundtrack and title for an episode of the TV show Secession, in which a media mogul father faces a boardroom coup staged by his sons. She would have been delighted, however by Bragg's most recent performance of her song on the picket line of the mainly immigrant striking hotel workers in Boston during a U.S. tour in October. They could connect with the song, he says, its role in that its context is to promote solidarity. And so now I'm going to play both those versions. I'm going to play Florence Reese's version first. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win. Because we've got the gun thugs a-looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. 
You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say they have to guard us to educate their child. Their children live in luxury, our children almost wild. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Gentlemen, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a gun thug or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner. He's now in the air and sun. He'll be with you, fellow workers, till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Now all of you know which side you're on, and they'll never keep us down. I mean, you can feel, like, clearly this is done, this was recorded years later after several other versions had been recorded, but you can still hear that pain in her voice and her message at the end. It's raw. I mean, it's... Okay, so now I'm going to play the Pete Seeger version, which, like I said, is a little bit more melodic and more of what you would akin to a a proper radio-friendly song. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County There are no neutrals there You'll either be a union man Or a thug for J.H. Blair Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Come in here to dwell 
I think both of them have a very strong impact. And like she said, well, like a, like the copy said that people kind of change the wording. And so she had said, will you be a gunman? And he said, will you be a lousy scab or a man? Yeah. That was clearly a miners union anthem. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very, very impactful, very powerful because it is a voice from a woman who has been terrorized and it was it was literally written on a calendar like what happened to her that night i don't know but what came out of it was a movement and i think that's so important what's still going on today when you see what's happening with individuals like brianna taylor yeah uh the the no knock warrant Mm mm-hmm I, and I think, I think that up to this point, literally every song that we've listened to has got some present day equivalent, which is why these songs are so important to keep revisiting. Because yes, they are a message of pain and fear, but there's also a message of hope that maybe one day, one day, we can change. Uh, so. We got two more that we're going to talk about. Um, we've actually covered this particular song in the past. Uh, TJ's episode on Dolores O'Riordan did cover this song, but we're just going to cover it uh, shortly in this episode. Um, three-year-old Jonathan Ball was killed when two bombs hidden under litter bins detonated on a busy street in March 1993, and then Tim Perry, age 12, died five days later. Dolores O'Riordan, who was on tour at the time, found herself deeply affected by this tragedy. I remember seeing one of the mothers on TV, and she was just devastated. She told Vox Magazine in 1984. And I should say that this is about the Cranberry song, Zombie. I felt so sad for her, she said about the mother, that she carried him for nine months, had been through all the morning sickness, the whole thing, and some prick some airhead who thought he was making a point did that. The singer was particularly offended that terrorists claimed to have carried out these acts in the name of Ireland. The IRA are not me. I am not the IRA, she said. The Cranberries are not the RA. My family are not. Uh, when it said that it's not me, it's not my family, that's what I'm saying. It's not Ireland. It's some idiots living in the past. I picked up the electric guitar, and then I kicked in distortion on the chords, and I said to Berg, which is the drummer. Maybe you could beat the drums pretty hard, she told Team Rock last year. Even though it was written on an acoustic, it became a bit of a rocker. The heavier sound was the right thing for the song, said guitarist Noel Hogan. If it was soft, it wouldn't have that impact, he told Holland Face Culture in 2012. This was a new direction for us, and it would stand out on set because of that. Dolores's lyrics received some criticism at the time, people calling her naive and accusing her of taking sides in a conflict that she didn't understand. I don't care whether it's Protestant or Catholic. I care about the fact that innocent people were harmed, she told Vox, and that's what promoted me to write the song. 
it was nothing to do with writing a song about it because I'm Irish. You know, I never thought I'd write something like that in a million years. I used to think I'd get in trouble. Instead, the song became an anthem for innocence trapped by other people's violence. In the 1990s, O'Riordan would regularly dedicate it to the citizens of Bosnia and Rwanda, and her message applies equally to the recent attacks in Manchester, Paris, Egypt, just to name three. It doesn't name terrorist groups or organizations, she told the enemy in 1994. It doesn't take sides. It's a human song. To me, the whole thing is very confusing, but if these adults have a problem with these other adults, well, go and fight them. Have a bit of balls at least, you know?
So there was a, a wonderful play that came out in 1994 called A Night in November. And it's done as a one-man show. And it focuses, it's the perspective of a Protestant dole clerk, clearly working for the, the government in Ireland. And he is about his experience and the discrimination he feels as a Protestant in Northern Ireland. Ireland. And it actually all culminates with a bombing. And it's his take on what that is like. But it's interesting because I will never forget the opening scene of this play. The lights come up and he's going to work. And the first thing he does, he walks out to his car and he looks under it. Mm. And that just resonated with me when you were mentioning the sort of backstory of this song is that it's a world we don't know. It's something that I think a lot of people have been sheltered from. And this performance really brought that into the light. And I think it's very reflective of what this song is about. I agree. I mean, we we don't have that particular fear of holding a religious belief that might be against a people's. We have that religious freedom here. And we don't live in fear of having to check our cars for bombs. We don't live in that constant fear of thinking, you know, where are all the exits? Well, at least we didn't until, you know, Aurora happened. Yeah. Of having to know where the exits are, having to to have that fear. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah. I, I laugh, but I laugh so I don't cry. And I, I think it was very naive of someone to say that, you know, you shouldn't write a song that you don't know anything about. Well, she felt something in that moment, and she deserves she deserves to own that sadness. She deserves to put her feelings out like that. These songs were born of tragedy, of these moments in time in which they were directly affected by something, going all the way from strange fruit to which side are you on to a change is going to come. Things happened to these people that, that made them sit down and put pen to paper and then their voice to tape. And they made their mark, and they made their moment. And that's why we still go back to them almost 100 years later in some cases. Um, for the final one, I'm going to talk about the one that is the most recent in our catalog of protest songs, which is Kendrick Lamar's All Right, which is from 2015. And I think I'm going to say some words in this uh, little intro for the song that probably still resonate now <laughs> which is uh, in the lead up to the March 2015 release of Kendrick Lamar's landmark album To Pimp a Butterfly the United States was suffering a period of serious civil unrest that has not changed in November 2014 the decision to not indict the police officers who fatally shot Michael Brown ignited protests and riots across the country same was George Floyd almost identical yeah that same month 12 year old tamir rice was shot and killed by police after being spotted holding a toy gun the black lives matter movement was gaining momentum daily and on the release of two pimp the song all right with its plea for hope through solidarity and resilience was adopted by supporters of the cause all right rapidly became a bona fide anthem 
one of the best protest songs of its era, demonstrating the importance that social media plays in spreading the word. Video footage for the protesters gleefully shouting Kendrick's refrain of We're Gonna Be Alright was shared around the world, underlying the influence of the music that it still has on politics. I'm going to play that song for you now. And guys, I just wanted to give another language warning in front of this song because it does have some naughty words. So if you have little ones in the car, uh, skip forward three minutes and 14 seconds. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah. Nazareth, I'm fucked up, homie, you fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. And when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I be looking at you from the face down. One Mac 11 even boom with the bass down. Skimming, and let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a twilight. We're pretty pussy and Benjamin is the highlight. I tell my mama I love her, but this what I like. Lord knows. 20 of them in my Chevy. Tell them all to come and get me. Reaping everything I sow. So my karma come in heaven. No preliminary hearings on my record. I'm a motherfucking gangster. Silence for the record. Uh. Tell the world I know it's too late. Boys and girls, I think I've gone great. Trying to side my faces all day. Won't you please believe when I say, Wouldn't you know we've been hurt, been down before? Nigga, when our pride was low, looking at the world like, Where do we go? Nigga, and we hate poor, poor. Wanna kill us dead in the street for sure. Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door. My knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gon' be alright. Motherfucker, you can live with them all. I can see the evil, I can tell it. I know it's illegal, I don't think about it. I deposit every other zero, thinking of my partner. Put the candy painting on a Rico, digging in my pocket. Ain't a profit big enough to feed you every day. My logic, get another dollar just to keep you in the presence of your Chico. Ah! I don't talk about it, be about it. Every day I seek you. If I got it, then you know you got it. Heaven, I can reach you. Pet dog, pet dog, pet dog, my dog, that's all. Pick back and chat, I trap the back for y'all. I rap, I black on tracks, so rest assured. My rights, my wrongs, I write till I'm right with God. When you know. We've been hurt, been down before. Nigga, when our pride was low, looking at the world like, where do we go? Nigga, and we hate poor, poor. Wanna kill us dead in the street for sure. Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door. My knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gon' be alright. So with that, we're going to close out the show. I think that we have uh, nailed down arguably some of the best protest songs that 
have been recorded over the last 95 years, we know that we miss some. We can't cover all of them in a two-hour podcast, but please connect with us on social media. Let us know some of your favorite songs. Uh, let us know what songs affect you the most. Uh, we love to hear you. I will give out our social stuff, and you should be able to see it in the show notes, I believe. Um, and a message to basically the world. You guys, right now we're living in an unprecedented time of pandemic shortages, civil unrest, uncertainties. People are unemployed. People are living in fear. We, we, we don't have any answers. But all I can say is, guys, keep fighting. Always keep fighting. If you feel inclined to do so, please go out on the streets. March protest. It is our God-given right. It is in the Constitution. We are allowed to do that. But I do ask that you guys please wear a mask. Please be as safe as possible. Please social distance. But guys, change is affected by people speaking together. And this is our moment that we can actually affect a change in the world for the better, where every one of us will finally be equal with each other. And I, I, I'm I get so upset when I say this because I feel like it's not fair that we don't have the respect for our fellow man that we should be having. And I feel like this is our time where we can be better. We can make that change. So please, guys, never stop fighting. I'm sorry I had to step away from the mic because I was getting... Very upset, but guys, please keep fighting. Please don't ever stop fighting. That is how things change, and that is how we become better as a society. And with that, guys, I say goodbye to you, and I'm just going to give our social stuff. Please uh, check us out next week where we talk about uh, benefit concerts and from the past. And I really appreciate you guys checking this episode out. Please make sure to check us out next week where our topic is going to be Benefit Concerts is going to be led by Mr. Hickey right here. And if you guys want to reach out and talk to us, you can do so on our socials. If you would like to donate any money, which is totally voluntary, guys, uh, I know this is a very rough time for everyone. Uh, but if you have an extra buck or two, you can give it to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You could find us on Twitter at rockandrolllt. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Also, please check out the other awesome podcasts on the Pantheon Network at Rock and Roll Archaeology.com and the Pantheon Network. Thank you guys so, so much for checking us out. And please keep rocking in the free world. Goodbye. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions.
The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through what? In a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on search for tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 